0: Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while hopefully inspiring the creation of some new ones. I am Richard. And I am Gideon. Today we have part two of our special Welsh language episode. We hope you enjoy it. So
1: in part one we'd been talking about the overall decline of the Welsh language over the last thousand years. And we had been looking at some significant events that had an impact, negative or positive, we got as far as the 1960s, a time when the downward curve was so steep, if the trend continued, the Welsh language could have died out by the end of the 20th century. And of course, that hasn't happened, so let's talk about why. We've previously mentioned Saunders-Lewis and his now famous radio lecture Du Yith. Well, this proved to be a pivotal moment. Galvanised by Lewis's words, the 60s saw a resurgence of Welsh language activism yr Iraith Cymraig was formed, the Welsh Language Society, and engaged in peaceful activism to great effect. We've already heard from Helen Prosser of Dusky Cymraig and from Roger Glyn Thomas, both of whom were involved with Cymdeithus and who they are, to tell us about the period.
2: The main turning point, I suppose, was in the 60s when there was uh, revolutions throughout the world. And what happened in Wales in 1962 was a scholar called Saunders Lewis gave the BBC's annual radio lecture called The Fate of the Language. And following that, a group of young people set up the Welsh Language Society, which embarked on a series of campaigns, which meant direct action, but very importantly, always non-violent direct action, never, ever endangering uh, human life, but always believing that property and road signs and painting walls and so on, was justifiably out there, if you like, as targets.
3: It was very much uh, um, down to students, really, in Aberystwyth, who started the the protest movement. They started carrying out acts of civil disobedience, um, like carrying somebody on the crossbar of of their bike so that there were two people to bike. That was deemed to be an offence, and they would uh, then get a summons, and they would insist on having the summons in Welsh, and so forth. And the first uh, mass protest happened shortly after the radio broadcast in 1962. So they all marched over to Bevechan Bridge, and there they sat down in the street. Uh, and that really was the first mass protest uh, by yr Iaith. I became active with Cymdeithas. Uh, in about six and I would have been um, 16, 17 at the time. And it was the time of, uh, of the road signs protest. We were protesting against uh, English-only uh, road signs, which became a very big issue. And as well as painting the road signs, David Ewan's got a very famous song, Paint Your Bead and Whittle, encouraging people to go out and paint road signs, deface them. Then that developed into a campaign of taking down road signs. We would take the signs down and then take them down to the local police station and hand them in uh, so that we would find ourselves uh, facing criminal action for the damage we'd we'd undertaken. It was very much taking responsibility for our actions, ensuring that those actions were also uh, non-violent
1: and in that decade we see the passing of the Welsh Language Act 1967 which gives the right for legal proceedings to be conducted in Welsh in the courts of Wales for the first time since the laws passed by Henry VIII 400 years ago. This is obviously a win for the Welsh language movement but it's a small one because English is still the official language of Wales.
3: The protest movement uh, in Wales language protest movement started with uh a call for uh, official status for the Welsh language. The Welsh language was uh, seen very much as being the the language uh, of of the home and of the chapels and very little else. Uh, And uh, it was an attempt to ensure uh, the Welsh language would become a language which is used in all aspects of life.
1: The language of the home and the chapel. Now, if a language is going to be part of the national identity It needs to be free of those confines. Well, absolutely. And one way it can be that is through the media. The 60s saw the founding of Øllolver, a Welsh-language publishing house in Aberystwyth. Uh, The founding of Sign, the Welsh music publishers started by David Yuan, the singer and activist to whom we owe our theme tune. The launch of monthly current affairs magazine, Barn. Uh, And all of these are still operating today. Sadly, Cymro, the the weekly Welsh language newspaper that began publishing in 1932, closed in 2017. Though I suspect this is more to do with the trend of decreasing demand for printed media. Hmm. An active free press is both the fundamental of democracy and the living breath of of any national discourse. A hundred years ago, there were 25 weekly newspapers published in the Welsh language in Wales.
0: When, sorry? hundred years ago. Wow, and how many today? Two, I think. But
1: most Welsh papers will have sections in Welsh, like the Western Mail. The Western Mail does has sections in Welsh, so that figure only applies to fully Welsh language papers. And you know that's obviously great, but bilingualism is is good too. To understand the impact of mass media such as radio and television, we need to look back to the launch of radio broadcast. The BBC wireless service began in Britain in, do you know when? No. Twenties. Really? Yeah. I mean, it existed before as a, just a way of communications.
0: Yeah, but, but it's an actual broadcasting uh, service. Uh, yes.
1: Um, the Wel- Welsh language programming was so scarce as to be virtually non-existent. Back then, it was the opinion of the BBC director general that the best programs came from London and that the regional stations should imitate their style and content. Uh, this greatly increased the average Welsh person's exposure to English and therefore would have been a further erosion of the Welsh language foothold. And Welsh speakers were not happy with it. A report from the Welsh Board of Education accused the BBC of... You want to have another go?
0: Doing the voices? Oh yeah, go on then. Achieving the complete anglicisation of the intellectual life of the nation. We regard the current policy of the British Broadcasting Corporation as one of the most serious menaces to the life of the Welsh language.
1: Bravo! Die down! I enjoyed that. So, pressure groups were set up. A notable example being Kilch co-founded by none other than Saunders-Lewis. Part of the problem was that in the 20s and the 30s, Wales fell under the umbrella of the West region, which served South West England. Mm. Those in the north and west Wales couldn't even pick up the station, too far away. The official standpoint of the region director at the time was that all broadcasting should be in English. His justification being that the government had set up the BBC, therefore the official language of the government should be used. And it's hard to argue with his logic. The problem goes back to 1534. Welsh has no official status in its own country anymore. Hmm. Pressure groups' demands for recognition for the Welsh language in Wales got louder. But the BBC were very resistant. Which, I don't know. I don't really know why you'd be so resistant. The BBC were very resistant.
0: I guess cost, I mean, is a big thing.
1: Well, listen to this. Even going so far as to claim that there physically weren't enough airways to accommodate broadcasts in both languages. And a young Welsh physicist named Edward George Bowen, aged just 19 at the time, publicly disproved this argument. And with the resulting pressure of of being caught in a lie, essentially, the BBC conceded. And in 1935, a transmitter station was established in Bangor, North Wales. And in 1937, Wales uh, was recognised as its own region and was able to begin producing high-quality content in both languages. Now, some of these gains were lost in the national austerity of World War II, but that was, that was nationwide. Tempor- and that was temporary. And it was temporary, exactly. So jumping forward again to the 60s and 70s, we have the launch of the entirely Welsh-language radio station, BBC Radio Cymru which first transmitted on 3rd January 1977 and is still going strong today. It's since been joined by other Welsh language and bilingual radio stations in Wales. But the dominant medium of the 20th century has undeniably been...
0: Television. 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 Telly.
1: Wales got its own channel in 1964, BBC Cymru, which had 12 hours of programming per week, five hours in English and seven in Welsh. But it seems people weren't happy with this. Welsh speakers considered it insufficient, and English speakers in Wales apparently objected to having to watch programmes in a language they didn't understand. Didn't have to do anything, (laughs) didn't have to watch it, but they felt that they were now being underrepresented.
0: Right, with the limited choice available. Yeah.
1: During the 70s, the call for an entirely separate Welsh language channel became louder. So loud, in fact, that both Margaret Thatcher and her Labour opponents made it part of their election campaign promises. But, once in power, the Conservatives reneged on that promise. In protest, more than 2,000 people pledged to go to prison rather than continue paying their licence fee.
3: There was a very important campaign to create a, a Welsh-language channel, and Dr Gwynfor Evans was central to that. He was at the time president of, of Plaid Cymru. And there was a feeling among a number of, of young Welsh people that Plaid Cymru wasn't doing enough in terms of fighting the case for Wales and for the Welsh language. Uh, Gwynedd Evans has brought about a campaign for the Welsh language channel uh, threatening to starve himself to death unless uh, the channel was given. And he is uh, largely credited uh, with the change of heart which happened to the Margaret Thatcher government have initially said that there wouldn't be a Welsh language channel, uh, they were forced to change their minds.
1: And as a result of Dr. Gwynver Evans, I love his language, by the way, I'm not going on hunger strike, I'm going to starve myself to death. <laughs> <laughs> so dramatic. I know. Uh, and as a result, we have S. S4C, which began broadcasting on 1st of November 19- 1982. Yes. One day before channel four started broadcasting it's actually been around one day longer and
0: that's a that's a pub quiz statistic i know that's a pub quiz fact right it's a pub
1: quiz but not a new york pub quiz probably
0: no that would be incredibly niche welsh broadcasting services
1: Uh, and since then, S. Padraic has continued to air programming in both Welsh and English, such as the BBC's longest-running soap opera, Publicum. The formation of S. Padraic changed the dynamic of the Welsh language in Wales. It increased English-speaking Welsh people's exposure to the language, and you can imagine how it might uh, elevate the status of the language now that it has its own channel.
0: Mm. And even, I think, when you watch the rugby now, you know, certain rugby players or commentators or professionals will get to go on S4C because they speak Welsh. Yeah, that's
1: a marketable skill. Vesli. And with the demand for these Welsh language programmes, there were several independent TV production companies that sprung up. And from that, an industry has grown so that now Cardiff is one of the busiest cities for film and television production in the UK, producing content that is watched all over the world, thinking of... Doctor Who and Torchwood, etc. And I was surprised to learn um, when I was research, researching for this that there are still campaigns being waged. Currently, Comdetas is campaigning for the decentralization of broadcasting powers. People are withholding TV license payments again, that sort of thing. And there's this really nice quote from uh, one one lady who is has been in court and has been threatened with prison and the bailiffs for refusing to pay her TV license and court fees. Uh, but she's standing strong. Her name is Iris Gwelyn and there's a really good quote from her. Devolving political powers is meaningless without devolving broadcasting powers. If the media is not answerable to the people, democracy is not possible. As true today as it ever was.
0: Mm. So the reason that we have signs on the roads in Welsh, the reason that we have you know, the postal service in Welsh, the reason that we have broadcasting services still in Welsh is because of this activism. It wasn't achieved... You know, overnight, and it wasn't achieved just by these things just existing. Like, and people. And fought, nor was it gifted. Nor was it gifted. People fought for this. Exactly. Um, and, you
1: know, in, like basically, the, the reason that you and I have anything more than a passing familiarity with the Welsh
0: language is because of their efforts, and the and the impact of those efforts. Yeah.
1: The 60s also saw the creation of the Welsh Office which was responsible for ensuring Welsh interests are heard and taken into account by the government in Westminster the head of the welsh office was the secretary of state for wales a position still exists today a position that had previously existed since 1951 under a different name the minister of welsh affairs the labour party proposed the creation of the welsh office in their 59 general election manifesto and were able to put it into effect when they got into power in 64 The creation of the cabinet position of Secretary of State for Wales and the Welsh office in the 60s was seen as a step towards self-rule for Wales. But then in the 80s and 90s, during the governments of Thatcher and John Major, when the number of Conservative MPs in Wales dwindled, the government stopped looking within Wales to fill the post, and the position no longer certain to be held by a Welshman. It came to hold a little less value for the Welsh cause, but... Nevertheless, in 1993, we saw the passing of another Welsh Language Act. This time, the legislation gave equal footing to Welsh and English in the public sector in Wales, finally repealing the laws put in place by Henry VIII. And since the new Labour government and the 1997 devolution referendum, we've had the National Assembly for Wales, established in 1999, and since 2006, the Welsh government. Now Wales has the ability to legislate for itself. Pressure groups no longer need to petition Whitehall and Westminster to effect the changes they seek.
0: Mm, so the, the World Assembly.
1: Yes, I was saying it. Okay, another another clip from Roderick Glynn Thomas.
3: Uh, and then at the end of the last century, of course, there was uh, a radical change in Wales when the National Assembly for Wales was set up uh, through the referendum in 1997, it was officially open following the elections in 1999, and uh, during the, the uh, first two decades of the 21st century, uh, what we've seen is that that uh, assembly getting greater uh, powers, becoming a true Senate, the Senate uh, with legislative powers, and therefore Kandesas has had to adapt to that change, and that then brought about a very different uh, form of campaigning where there was the opportunity to try and influence the Welsh Government to give greater status to the to the Welsh language and to create the Welsh Commissioner's Office and to bring about a new Welsh Language Act. And uh, within the National Assembly of Wales, we were able to create uh, legislation for the official languages of Wales so that Welsh and English were given the same status within the the assembly the majority language of Wales English and the minority language the traditional language of Wales Welsh were, were given the same status uh, and that uh, then created another dynamic for the Welsh language so things that have changed dramatically from 1962 that there has been a a radical change uh, so does Lewis called for a radical change in his in his radio lecture? Well, one can argue that that has happened to a large extent. First of all, there was a, a dynamic in terms of language created by Welsh language education, uh, which developed uh, at the end of the 50s, the start of the 60s of the last century. In various parts of Wales, the first primary Welsh school was in, in Aberystwyth, but a number of others followed. Uh, And over the decades, we've seen uh, Welsh medium education developing rapidly um, throughout Wales. And there is a growing demand now for more and more Welsh medium education. There is talk of creating the fifth uh, Welsh secondary school in Cardiff alone. But uh, even uh, with those changes, uh, the Welsh language is still a minority language spoken by just over twenty percent of the population uh, of of Wales, and therefore, like every minority language uh, in Europe, uh, is is under pressure uh, and is still in a in a situation where it needs to be uh, safeguarded and defended.
1: I really like listening to, to him speaking about the changes that he has helped bring about. You know, and he said yeah. what we were able yeah, yeah, to yeah. do. It's so cool. you um, went. He mentioned. Welsh medium education there, and I think we should expand on that. The benefit that Welsh medium education has in terms of preserving the language cannot be overstated, really. We've talked about the need for Welsh to be more than just the language of the home and the chapel. It should also be the language of the workplace and the bus stops. And the foundation for that is for Welsh to be the language of the schools. Back to the schools. The first Welsh medium primary school was in Lleil in 1947. The first Welsh medium secondary school was established in Rill 1956. Uh, these, are, these are quite promising figures, these next one 2008, 50,000 children received their education through the medium of Welsh. 2018, 10 years later, the number is 75,000.
0: Oh, so we, we are seeing increases in people being taught Welsh. Yes. Even if the do- number of people on the census saying that they speak Welsh today hasn't quite caught up or, or continues to deplete.
1: Well, or, or maybe the it's it's not that the, the census figures uh, don't represent this, but that the fall-off would have been
0: steeper. It's the fall-off. The conversion is just less. Yeah,
1: you know, like the, as the older generations die out, maybe we'd have been down to 10% by now, but we've managed to reclaim some ground, maybe.
0: Hmm. So it could be people dying off, or it could be that just people aren't just keeping it up after school because it's it's just difficult. It, yes, exactly. As per some of the things exactly. we discussed earlier, as you transition into the workplace with Welsh not being the dominant language, and there still being people who aren't speaking Welsh, you know, it, it's less of an incentive to continue it. Continue it.
1: Um, as I said earlier, when I was a child, there was only one Welsh language secondary school in Swansea. Well, now there are two, and there are eleven Welsh medium primary schools, which to me suggests that more and more parents are choosing for their children to grow up Welsh speaking. Most, or at least some of these parents, I think it's safe to assume, did not grow up speaking Welsh themselves, and that's very promising. And if that trend continues, we could be on our way to being a bilingual nation. Wouldn't that be great? Would be great. But why be bilingual? There's definitely reluctance. Is there? Up, especially amongst first language English speakers worldwide to learning a second language you know yeah. it's like why should why should I make the effort I already speak English
0: but the benefits of speak uh, of bilingual being bilingual is so great like the ability to grasp the formation of language um, to start to see the connection between culture and language um there's actually um i don't know if you're familiar with the theory of linguistic relativity called sapir wharf no idea what that is what's that okay basically it claims that the structure of language uh often uh, impacts a people's worldview so it starts to think about how does how the language you speak impacts how you see the world and how you live within it it's why in certain cultures you have a word for something and others you don't so in german for example you have shander to take pleasure in someone's misfortune or a bit closer to home we have heraith So one might say, well, what, do we do we have the word because of how we are and how we feel, or do we feel how we are because we have the word? Think about Welsh people. They in- instinctively are quite, you know, we're not pre- braggers. We're, like, quite humble and don't, tr- you know, we're not like the Irish who travel very kind of, you know, homey almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yet we have this word heraith. So do we have the word heraith because... That is something the way we feel. So we've created this word to represent how we feel, or because we have this word, do we start to feel more like that? Uh, very interesting.
1: I don't know, I d- and I don't I know don't the answer to it. I've just I, always I,
0: been fascinated by, um, by that.
1: That's just reminded me of 1984, George Orwell, and mm-hmm. the, the Party, as the government is called. They're introducing a new language called Newspeak. They're trying to get rid of Old Speak, which is common english and the reason they they give is because if we can limit the words that people have we can limit the thoughts, thoughts. they can
0: form yeah well that's that would be based off um yes yeah, Sapir-Whorf, and an idea of linguistic relativity
1: and what Sapir-Whorf wolf is that person's name or? Uh, i think it's two people i want ah, to say see, but I don't, don't it's they study that. i got
0: yeah. you
1: well so jumping back in to um people's question of what we'll say now because you've you've uh you've raised some challenges you've raised some points uh, but uh, but the question of whether people have a reluctance to learn a second language when they already speak a majority language
0: there's also a difference between learning something as a child and learning it later in life oh, definitely. i can understand people's reluctance to learn it as an adult and the challenges around that but i i don't see why you wouldn't choose to bring up your your children bilingual and maybe that could be the encouragement for you to get yeah if, if you're going to send well.
1: your child to a welsh language school because obviously you think it's worthwhile how cool would it be if you then learned so that you could communicate with your child in that language absolutely yeah.
0: and I, would, I would love to bring my children up to speak welsh i hope i do but if not i will certainly bring them up to speak a second language yeah regardless
1: spanish mm-hmm. mandarin because more people speak that language than speak welsh It's a fair point because Welsh is never going to be a language of international diplomacy or commerce.
0: No, but there's the just just in. I think the benefits of being brought up to speak two languages, you understand patterns in language. Again, bringing back to my point around cultural differences, you understand there isn't just one way of doing things, and you can start to see connections in how people learn languages. In some languages, uh, there's words that are male gendered, for example and we have, and when you describe like a bridge for example in, in some languages you will have you know a bridge being male so if you ask to describe a bridge someone will describe it as long, strong, sturdy that's the kind of adjectives people will use in other languages where a bridge might be feminine they might say elegant, elongated they'll use traditionally feminine adjectives to describe it really? yeah and you only know that and you'll be able to detect these things if you happen to be bilingual and be able to think about those
1: that's very cool that's very cool more statistics. Monoglots, monolingual people, are in the minority. Only 40% of the world's population is monolingual. 60% then speak two or more languages. Some nations are officially bilingual. There are 57 sovereign countries in the world that have two or more official languages. But sadly, Wales is not included in that number because we are not a sovereign nation. Gasper. Uh, And then you have countries such as Denmark or the Netherlands, who have their own unique official language, which is in use daily. And on top of that, 85% plus of the population also speak English to be, you know, to be part of the, Mm -hmm. the, the wider modern world. So why not Wales too? We can be a bilingual nation. We have been since Roman times. Hmm. We're already an international language. There's Welsh diaspora all over the world. We've mentioned the Welsh speaking communities in England. There's a Welsh speaking contingent here in New York. There's entire Welsh speaking communities in Patagonia, South America.
0: Yeah, not to mention um, there's actually a great book if anyone wants to look it up by Pamela Petro who who has this book Travels in an Old Tongue. She's an American who studied at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth and then wanted to improve her Welsh. But every time she started to uh, speak in Welsh to a Welsh person, they would divert to English as a common tongue. Yeah. So her solution to this, which was quite clever, was to find Welsh diaspora all over the world who spoke Welsh but not English, and therefore use that as the medium to communicate. Um, and this was like late nineties, early two thousand, so early tech kind of internet. So she, I think, managed to track some people down and. I think spent almost about a year traveling to Norway, to Japan, to Hong Kong and actually stayed with people who spoke Welsh but didn't speak English awesome. so that the only tongue they could share was, was Welsh. So the closest thing they had to a common tongue
1: was well, Welsh yeah, and Welsh. That's, how she that's very cool.
0: Who was it? Uh, Pamela Petro and the, uh, the book's called uh, Travels in an Old Tongue.
1: That is That is super cool. And now I want to get to some examples of Welsh being out there on the world stage, as it were, to just just sort of to reiterate that it's not this small little language that exists in the villages of Wales; it's out there. And I've got a few written down here. The first one, BBC Radio camry is available worldwide anywhere with an
0: internet connection. Oh, I didn't know that. One I have for you is uh, I actually sent uh, this on our WhatsApp chat. Do you remember? It's a band called uh, Alpha. I do remember that. Yeah, they have a song called uh, Gwenwyn, which uh, I can't get enough of, which is odd because it's actually a rock track. Um, but I actually looked this up to find out who they were because I didn't. obviously we were listening to it at the time. It's actually a duo from Carnarvon, and um, they are actually the first Welsh-language song to score a million plays on Spotify. And
1: then you just reminded me, Moong by Super Furries, the first Welsh-language album to make it
0: into the UK charts. Ah, so we, yeah, so we have these milestone examples. Also, we would before we started, we talked about keeping faith.
1: Yes, in Boromera, the Welsh language uh, name of that show. I've just watched season one
0: in Welsh or English.
1: Well, I only I watched it in English, but I have to explain that I looked for it in Welsh. I was home in Wales last week, and you know how iPlayer only keeps things for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Season one was only available in English. Season two. Is available in welsh and i have that downloaded on my laptop and i'm going to watch it in welsh with english subtitles ah, but you know that show is available in the english language version here in the states on prime video
0: yeah it's actually i i from what i understand being downloaded pretty much all over certainly in the us it's, it seems to be part of this along with killing eve and uh what's that other one that's popular now with a female director oh fleabag fleabag uh, yeah, this kind of resurgence of British um, television. And
1: I love that it's in there with those shows, which are obviously not Welsh-language shows, but there's no difference. We'll bring them all together. Look at our output. Um, and, the, of course, the first show to be recorded in that way, where they do it in both Welsh and English, was Hinterland, or the Welsh name Ugwel, uh, Of course. Uh, which is available here in the States on Netflix. So I know people that have watched that show and have asked me, oh, you know that show. And, I mean... Ooh, hello, amblements again. What a massive undertaking that is to record everything twice, both in Welsh and English. It definitely would have cost money yeah, to how, do that. Just, I mean,
0: you work you work in film and TV. How much? How much more? Because obviously, it's not double because it's not quite got, double. No,
1: because you set up time you don't yeah. have to do that twice. Or what
0: twenty five percent more? Fifty percent more?
1: Probably close to twenty or thirty percent more. Yeah, it's got to be because. you you, once you've set up and you've rehearsed okay so you've rehearsed the the movements around the room the blocking but the performance is the thing that you go again for okay we'll try that again and the performance is going to change when you go from a different language okay so we got the english one in three takes we might need to do the welsh one three or four times as well so you're doubling the amount of takes that you do
0: and i can't imagine there's that many people who are who are only going to watch it if it's in Welsh or watch it because it's in Welsh. So it, it, they're not doing it purely from for any financial reasons. They must just be purely doing it for a, a philosophical... Yeah, they reasons. think it's worth it,
1: right? It's got to be. That's what it is. Which is great. And I so agree. It is worth it. Kudos I, to them. I'm very pleased that I have that on my laptop ready to watch. Um, there's been Welsh-language films nominated for an Oscar because they have a they have a foreign film yeah, uh, category. Which one? The first one with Hayth Wynne. 1993 and then in 2000 solomon Agana.
0: Hmm. yeah um and of course not to mention the International steadfast
1: yes what a what a we could do a whole episode on instead the national the international seven internationalized edward, but what a great platform for the welsh language and welsh language literacy throughout history it's been going since the
0: 1100s yeah, and continues to go specifically here in the united states
1: it's yeah, super cool stuff so some of the world's best singers, actors and poets are well speaking about the cantarion again. Um, I don't know what I'm saying here. I suppose just that the language is only useless if you don't use it. It's, well, it's only useless if you deem it useless. Well said. Now, hopefully, some of the things that we've said so far might have, uh, I don't know, reignited a sense of national pride, a cultural linkage to the
0: Welsh language. Or if you're not Welsh at all, you're just curious, giving you some parts of information that you might pass on to someone else one day.
1: Perhaps you'd be interested to hear some other reasons to learn Welsh because there are proven benefits you've spoken about this already richard there are proven benefits to bilingualism uh development developmental benefits increased agility of mind that sort of thing and to speak to us about those benefits we have another expert contributor that i would like to introduce we are about to hear from dr kate phillips professor of human biology at rutgers university in new jersey and quite fittingly she was also our welsh teacher that's right. Uh, Kate 's prepared a very thorough overview of the studies done on bilingualism for us. It was so fascinating to listen to, and I wish I could have included more of it, but I have tried to distill it down for our purposes today.
4: When people ask me about the benefits of bilingualism, I, I like to talk to them about the timeline, the, the advantages that people are going to get at, at different points in their life. And we can go right back to, to children as young as three years old, for instance, thinking about this, because... Um, there's some great research that shows that when you take three, three-year-olds who are bilingual and compare them with um, three-year-olds who are monolingual, only speak one language, even at three years old, it's demonstrable that the bilingual three-year-olds um, have greater empathy. They are uh, They demonstrate that they're able to see things from other people's perspective better than children who are being raised in only one language. If we take um, just a couple more years and go to five and six year olds, if you ask a five or six year old about a sentence such as, apples grow on noses, from the perspective of, is it grammatically correct? Now, the interesting thing is, five, six year olds who are monolingual can't answer that. And it's because they get stuck on the fact that, well, apples don't grow on noses, do they? That's kind of a ridiculous statement. So they're unable to get past the fact that it's a ludicrous statement. When you ask the same age group, five, six-year-olds who are bilingual, is the sentence grammatically correct? They are able to identify the fact that the statement is grammatically correct, while still, still probably tell you that the sentence is nonsense. And this is the first kind of insight, if you like, that we get into uh, what might be occurring in the brain of somebody who's bilingual. What these five and six year olds appear able to do, um, the bilingual ones, is that they're able to take out and ignore the irrelevant information and kind of focus better on the task. And and lots of discussion has really focused around the notion of uh, that bilinguals are continuously activating two languages. Both of those languages are running um, in the bilingual brain. But the bilingual person um, activates neural pathways that enable them to what's called inhibit the non-target language. So the language that they're not using currently, they can suppress the noise, if you like, from that language and and ignore it. If we move into looking at adolescents and then adults, psychologists have had lots of fun getting our bilinguals and monolinguals to do tasks such as the Simon task and the go, no-go task if you're interested in this, you can actually look these up and you can find these online and you can have a go yourself. But the Simon Task, for instance, there there are two squares that are going to pop up on the screen in front of you. One of the squares is blue, I think, um, and one of the squares is red. And when the blue square pops up, you have to click the right arrow. And when the red square pops up, you have to click the left arrow. Now, this doesn't sound too difficult and when the blue square pops up on the right-hand side of the screen, pressing the, the right arrow isn't too much of a problem. When the blue square pops up on the left-hand side of the screen and now you've got to press the right arrow, there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance then. And uh, guess what? Bilinguals do much better at that than monolinguals. Um, so lots of tasks like that that you can try and see, you know, if you're bilingual and or maybe you've got a monolingual partner, you know, have a little bit of fun and see who does better on that. But that's just psych tests, isn't it? You know, that's not real life, is it? Well, if we kind of move from that to perhaps where might there be a real life benefit f- um, from being able to screen out irrelevant information, one that really is of interest in this day and age is driving. And we know that everybody but everybody, when they are driving and they use their phone, even a hands-free phone, their driving ability goes down. And we know this because we can put people in driving simulators and we can monitor um, their ability to react in certain situations, um, how often they cross the midline, all these kinds of things. And everybody's driving ability deteriorates when they've got this auditory input You know, nothing to do with holding the phone, just just using the hands-free phone. But the good news is, if you're bilingual, then it's statistically likely that your driving ability will deteriorate less when you use that hands-free phone. That's what the study showed, that bilinguals, you know, were able to kind of maintain their driving ability at a closer level to that um, that they had prior to using their hands-free device.
1: Pause there a second. Some fascinating information in there. But it reminded me of something. Let me ask you, Rich. Do you remember from Kate's Welsh lessons when she would say that that the studies have shown that every time we switch from the task in hand to check an incoming message on our phones, we suffer a 10 to 15 IQ point cognitive drop? Yes, I did. How often does that happen in modern life? Like we're constantly Uh, bombarded with... All the time.
0: Anytime you get a text or a message or...
1: And once again, in my fetal, bilinguals fare better at this, suffering just half the cognitive drop of their monolingual counterparts.
4: So moving through you know, our adulthood and getting to the, the other end of life, I would imagine that probably a lot of you are aware of, of the research concerning the benefits of learning a second language and whether we develop Alzheimer's disease or other forms of cognitive impairment at the end of our life. Here's what the research does show. The research shows that um, typically... And, you know, obviously it is going to vary, but but statistically we would expect people who are bilingual to um, not display signs of cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease until on average about four to five years after their monolingual peers. That's a pretty big improvement Our theories at the moment, the evidence at the moment seems to support the notion that really the earlier in life that you learn this second language, the better. So that our decline into cognitive impairments such as Alzheimer's disease is less, is slower, and it's a a longer time before we meet the criteria for diagnosis. One of the things that people might not know is that the sum of your mental functioning, if you like, is actually determined hugely, not so much by the number of neurons that you have, but by the connections that you have between these. These are super important. So the number of brain cells, neurons that we have, we're actually born with all of our neurons pretty much in place. We don't actually make more neurons during our lifetime, but what we do is we make the connections. Um, Somebody once said, uh, Susan Greenfield, a a famous uh, psychologist, she said, that the number of neurons that a typical adult brain has is around about the number of trees in the Amazonian rainforest. Now, I I will tell you that she said this about 20 years ago, so sadly that number has probably changed a little, but we'll we'll work with her analogy. So she said the number of neurons you had, yeah, equates to the number of trees in the Amazonian rainforest, but the connections that you have between these neurons that are making these things called synapses, so we'll think of synapses as connections, That's roughly equating to the leaves on the trees in the Amazonian rainforest. So in other words, we have way, way, way more uh, neuronal connections than we have actual neurons. And making these connections is something that we carry on doing through life. So it, it certainly would seem reasonable... That if you learn a language as an adult, you are absolutely going to make extra connections between these cells, um, maybe not at quite the rate that you would have made them when if you learned that language as a child, but certainly you could be making extra connections which may play a protective role in helping you maintain brain function at an at an older age to me as somebody who 's in it education and to me who's somebody it's somebody who 's become bilingual in later life but has helped to raise three bilingual children they in fact right from childhood as well have been incredibly receptive to learning another language I think when you raise children who are raised to think that it is normal to speak two languages then adding on a third or a fourth is well why wouldn't you kind of thing it's like it's normal to speak two languages so why isn't it normal to learn three languages and so I think they had a greater receptivity to learning languages. And and we know that languages relate hugely to cultures. So having that openness to learning another language, I, I think, gives people an openness to the cultures that are accompanied by those languages. Educationally, learning a third and then subsequent language has been likened to, if you're bilingual, well, when you become bilingual, you're learning to drive a car, Becoming trilingual is like learning to drive a bus, in that learning to drive a bus is a lot easier if you know how to drive a car. It's really just adaptations from that. Um, so that's, you know, expanding on bilingualism to beyond that. Um, I think that that was very useful for for my children. I don't know how much research there is on that, but that openness to other languages and cultures, I really think, was a benefit of learning of learning Welsh. And and I think that's quite useful because I certainly, you know, w- when we were in Wales, I used to have to um, face down the argument from people of, well, why have you got your children learning Welsh? It's a dead language. Well, obviously we would say it's not a dead language. It's revived greatly since the 1960s. But there are some people that you will never persuade that Welsh is a living, vibrant thing. And, and th- th- they're always going to think, um that it's not an important language so for them sometimes the way to go was to say well hey even if you don't love the fact that they're speaking Welsh you are improving their chances to speak other languages and now when we can talk about this you know driving ability and etc etc that gives us lots of reasons to try and encourage people to to encourage their children to speak a second language.
1: Diolch yn so interesting and so well presented. Perhaps now you might be motivated to learn Welsh, whether it be to increase your cultural connection to your homeland or just as an intellectual pursuit. What are the peculiarities of Welsh one would encounter that might seem uh, particularly strange to first language English speakers?
0: We've mentioned one already, which is
1: the double L sound.
0: Yeah. CH. Yeah. Double D. Oh, we could do a whole episode on Treglag. Mutations. Mutations.
1: <laughs> what if I told you that we have mutations in English? <sighs> no. They're just not always helpfully written down or uniformly applied. Let's give us an example. Like Angamrag. Okay. For example, a What do we call more than one house?
0: Uh, houses.
1: Yeah. With a Z sound. Mm.
0: Houses.
1: A house has a roof. Houses have Roofs with a V sound. Mm. Another example, the past tense of jump becomes jumped. That's a T sound. Okay, and these consonant mutations have evolved naturally in common speech and speech only to make the words easier to pronounce. But they're not in written. But they're not written down.
4: Mutations is obviously the big one, but (laughs) <laughs> I, I tell students not to panic about them. If you actually talk with native Welsh speakers or if you listen to native Welsh speakers, um, you'll hear that a lot of them don't get all of the mutations right. They don't attempt to use all of them and they don't worry about them. Um, the soft mutation, that's the commonest one. And, and people get to grips with that pretty quickly. And, and one of the things that I tell students is that you know mutations didn't evolve just to torture learners mutations evolved because people thought that it made the words easier to say so um, if we're thinking about dad would be tard then my dad isn't vertard, where you have to kind of make two distinct words it's van hard um, which you know the Welsh learner thinks oh my goodness but actually it trips off the tongue really nicely so kind of having some understanding why these mutations evolved and also knowing that people will still understand you if you don't use them all or if you get some of them incorrect, um, means that they become not quite so terrifying.
1: Another one that people get really stuck on is the Welsh... Well, I certainly got stuck on it anyway, is the Welsh method of pluralising. It seems incredibly complicated. Uh, they don't just stick an S on the end like we're used to. School uh, and schools is skull Ascol and Ascolion. A scullion, yeah. Dog and dogs, key and coon, plentin, child becomes plant. So why can't we just put an S on the end like we do in English? Except we don't, not all the time. Because what are the plurals for man, woman, and child?
0: Men, women, children. What's
1: the plural for sheep and fish?
0: Sheep and fish.
1: <laughs> What's the plural for foot and tooth? Feet, teeth. Yeah, so these things that seem so peculiar to us are not so strange after all, we have examples of them in the English language, but we learned them as children, sort of like almost by osmosis.
0: Yeah, I think I heard once that there's more irregularities in English than many other languages.
1: Yes, I've heard that too, like apparently it's the most difficult to learn.
0: And that's because it's been, as you said earlier, been adapted for ease of speech. And as it's become the A dominant language, speech has been prioritized.
4: So there are definitely grammar rules that you have to learn um, and not all of them are exactly going to, you know, um, uh, not all of them are going to mesh with the rules that you've learned, um, you know, intuitively really um, by speaking English. But one of the things that I will say about Welsh is that its pronunciation rules and its grammar rules, in my experience, tend to be adhered to a lot more than in English. You know, we we all grew up speaking English, so we've absorbed the rules and the exception to the rules without realising it.
5: So, So people often say that, well, it's a difficult language to learn. Um, and I think this is, this is based on a misperception of how language learning works. Um, as a traditional approach, then it, it, it can be. But what really happens is that the further away a language is from your own language, the more difficult it seems. So for people who speak English, languages like German or French or Spanish all seem to have these points of connection. Welsh feels a bit further away. One of the things is that if you, if you work at it in the right way, if you, if you practice your, your spoken production in the right way, then all the ways in which the language mismatches to English become much less important.
1: The voice you just heard at the end there is that of Aaron Jones. Aaron learned Welsh in his 30s after learning other world languages, and his experiences led him to design a language learning app called Say Something in Welsh. As we've said, Richard and I attended Welsh lessons here in Brooklyn, taught by Kate Phillips, and those lessons were supplementary to, uh, and in fact, built around the framework of the app, Say Something in Welsh, which we used in our own time.
0: Well, I found them really useful, especially in as a companion to the Welsh lessons. Um, although I did find, as soon as we stopped the in-person Welsh lessons, I kind of stopped using the companion app. Mm. Um, it was a really good supplementary tool, um, but having the kind of the weekly lessons or bi-weekly lessons uh, kind of forced me to actually listen to it. And I, I would actually listen to it normally commuting to work, back and forth, riding my city bike, looking like a madman, just speaking to myself.
1: <laughs> but that's one of the best things about being able to listen, or be able to do the learning process through your headphones, is that you can do it on the subway or, you know, in the shower or you're washing the dishes. It doesn't, it's not something like, a, a, you know, something you have to necessarily set aside time for.
0: No. And thankfully, people in New York are tend to be either tend to be speaking on the phone or listening to music, singing to themselves or just talking to themselves. So you don't look too odd.
5: Well, I, the experience I had as a Welsh learner myself um, was one which turns out to be quite common. It was only after I learned Welsh that I really became sensitized to to the position of the language. Um, up until then, I'd been quite cavalier about it. If somebody said, oh, you know, Welsh is in danger, I wouldn't really have known what they were talking about. I just always sort of presumed that it was, it was there somewhere happening, somewhere I didn't really know about. Um, and that that mattered to me. I had to to get it back at some stage. And I, I'd always known that one day I would come back to Wales and that I had unfinished business, that I, I needed to be a Welsh speaker. My grandparents were Welsh speakers. I was that um, classic generation after the generation that lost it. So um, all the signs were that I was going to be very bad at learning Welsh. Um, and then I came back, and I, I leapt into a couple of intensive ulpans. And after about a year or so, I, I was living my life through the medium of Welsh. I'd had this experience of living in a lot of different countries um, and being very bad at learning languages. Maybe it wasn't my fault. Maybe, maybe there's a methodology issue going, out, going along. So I, I started to get interested at that stage. Um, and Say Something in Welsh was what came out of that, starting to wonder which bits of learning languages actually gave you the results and which were the the, the waste of time.
4: If you follow a course like um, Say Something in Welsh, obviously this is a, a course which is, is really entirely based on, on hearing and then repeating and, and, you know, lots and lots of repetition and basically no writing down. Say something in Welsh is is trying to get you to learn as a child learns. It's trying to get you to just practice, to say things, not to worry about when you make mistakes, and to just absorb the language that way. And in fact, you get to speak the language very quickly. And that's a really wonderful thing about um, Say Something in Welsh. You know, learning as a child, really, you're going to get to be speaking useful relevant Welsh much more quickly this way
1: say something Welsh is by no means the only method of learning Welsh for those of you listening right now who might want to do so we heard earlier from Helen Prosser the from the National Centre for Learning Welsh also known as Dusky Camrag. here she is again to tell us about the new Welsh Government Initiative and the manifold learning resources that are now available
2: at the moment we have in Wales Uh, According to the last census, 562,000 Welsh speakers. Now, unfortunately, we saw a decline in the 10 years between 2001 and 2011. Uh, We actually lost 20,000 Welsh speakers, but we now have an ambitious initiative from Welsh government to create a million new Welsh speakers by 2050. Dysgu Cymraeg means learning Welsh. We have a new National Centre for Learning Welsh. We've been in existence now for about three years. Obviously, people have been teaching Welsh to adults in Wales for decades, but there was never any strategic body set up to coordinate uh, what we were doing, really. So what we have now, we are the central body. and We've got, well, a number of of exciting projects. We have One Stop Shop, which is a website where people living in Wales can, can book a course anywhere they like in Wales. But also, which may be of interest to your listeners, is we have lots and lots of free resources, uh, digital resources on our website for the four main levels of Learning Welsh, which are Entry, Foundation, Intermediate and Advanced. So anyone can go online at www. Learn welsh dot uh, and and find these resources. It's extremely important to us that all these resources are free. We 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 get uh, government support. We want as many people as possible to partake. We don't believe in hiding any of our resources. So it's just encouragement for people in Wales predominantly, but also all over the world, to take a look at these materials and joining with us. Uh, It's the first time we've ever had a national course as well, which has had many positive spin-offs. For example, the Welsh television channel, S4C, have set up a new YouTube page where they also have materials for Welsh learners, more or less following what we have in our courses. There are specific programmes for quite fluent learners on a Sunday morning. But the whole channel, of course, is a fantastic resource where you hear different accents and so on. The other resource, I think, which is sometimes easier, as you may agree with the, with the podcast, is radio, with television. Obviously, you have to sit and watch and concentrate. Whereas if you listen to Radio Cymru, uh, the Welsh language um, radio television channel, you can let it wash over you. And we're actually working with Radio Cymru at the moment to set up a whole week for Welsh learners in October. So that's another new initiative we've been, ha- been, been able to set up as the Cymraeg. Some listeners may also be using Duolingo to learn Welsh. And in our new course books, we use the Duolingo symbols that they correspond. Um, the, the revision units in our coursebook, they correspond with what they can do on Duolingo. This is a lot of joined up thinking, which has been um, sorely missed maybe in the past.
1: Well, so there are options for personal study, online courses... Evening classes, supplementary reading and writing materials available, uh, useful resources available for free on the radio, television, YouTube, podcasts, and so on and so on. There's such a wealth of opportunity around us. Something I'm thinking of doing myself next year, hopefully, work schedule permitting is a residential course.
2: The majority of people learning Welsh in Wales attend uh, courses in their communities between two and nine hours a week. However, we also have a full-time residential centre in a derelict quarrying village, which is an absolutely beautiful place on the Llyn Peninsula in North Wales called Nantgwrtheirn. And they hold week-long courses for all levels throughout the year. You can also attend a summer course, which can be residential or non-residential, for a month in Aberystwyth in Mid Wales or for up to two months in Cardiff, our capital city. set so up plenty of opportunities for people who don't live in Wales, but who want to travel and attend a residential course at a time that's convenient for them, but particularly in the summer, to come over and have a go
5: we We have two different residential approaches one is the the boot camps where we have people who come for a a week's holiday in Welsh where English is absolutely banned um and the The psychological shift that provides is is glorious to watch you. You see people who who struggle for the first two or three days and by the end of the week they are they are genuinely communicating in Welsh. In fact, at the end of each week, when we say, you've done it, you've survived, you're allowed to speak English again now, they all look at each other and you can see them thinking, but I don't speak English with this person, I speak Welsh with this person. We know that they sometimes even driven home sharing cars together, still speaking Welsh together, because just the switch has happened. And then for the last um, couple of years, we've been doing our our high-intensity approaches, so five days or or sometimes ten days, where we just drive people as hard as they can possibly go. So the idea is that we can actually start from scratch there. um, By the end of the five days, we can have them in conversational environments. By the end of 10 days, we can have them absolutely fine to survive through the medium of Welsh. You know, this, this this is real people getting real results.
1: But here's the thing. Unless you're able to go on one of these immersive residential courses to really get to grips with the language, you need to be using it out there in the wild, conversationally. On the fly, and this well, this can be so daunting as a learner, can't it? The fear of forgetting your words or being asked a question that you don't understand is usually enough to put people off attempting it. Yeah. When I started uh, learning, when I started uh, doing the classes and using say something in Welsh, I recall harbouring fantasies of learning Welsh to fluency in private. And then, like, emerging as if, as if from my chrysalis with, like, this repertoire of of jokes and a full vocabulary. But, I mean, that's just not how it works. It's not, not how it works. Um, the tutors and Say Something in Welsh, they always remind the users, you learn the most when you make mistakes. So, an ideal environment for a learner in Wales would be to encounter Welsh daily. In the shops, in the pub etc, etc. Opportunities to exercise their abilities. The roadblock to this at the moment is that currently it's unrealistic, even unfair, you could say, to strike up a conversation in Welsh with someone you don't know. They might not even speak the language. I mean, only 20% do. Or maybe they do, but they haven't the patience to listen to
0: you and to correct your mistakes. Um, Well, Dusky Can has their uh, lapel pin, don't they? I actually have one. Do you have one?
1: The orange thing. Mm -hmm. It's like an apostrophe or something.
0: A speech bubble.
1: Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? It's a speech bubble. I thought it was like a quotation mark, a single quotation mark. Oh, it might be. Yeah, no, speech bubble. Makes good sense. I remember uh, the enormous satisfaction of ordering a pint in Cardiff using my Welsh because the barman was wearing one of those pins. Ah. Eventually, of course, he went off script and I had to confess that I was just a learner, but... And was he a learner?
0: No, he he was fluent. He was just a supporter.
1: Yeah, but Ah. he was wearing his pin. And, you know, I think they're a great idea and they do serve their purpose well, but wouldn't it be wonderful if one day they were actually redundant? Hmm. Imagine this, a national shift in the attitude to learning Welsh, where everyone is just having a go, using the phrases they know, picking up new ones, where improvements are celebrated. Imagine how quickly we could all learn if we did it together.
4: We know currently in Wales, around about 80% of the population don't speak Welsh and about 20% do, but we need everybody on board, really.
2: The, the Welsh language can be something that it could divide us, but I think it could also unite us. And I'm I'm interested in the ways in which it can unite us.
5: There was somebody just the other day, uh, Marilyn, who posted to say that she didn't see many people talking about it, but for her, just the process itself was incredibly joyful. Every single time she, she said another sentence in Welsh, she felt as if she was reclaiming something beautiful.
1: I do firmly believe that speaking Welsh is not what defines someone as being Welsh. I've been patriotically Welsh all my life without speaking the language, as have all my friends and siblings that I grew up with in Swansea. There are many diverse conditions of being Welsh. There are those of us who are half Welsh and half another nationality, and there are people born to Welsh parents in other countries. Our little country has received immigrants from all over the world who now call Wales their home. I also firmly believe that a language with such a long and rich history deserves to be kept alive and in use. Our predecessors have fought for our heritage and marched for the survival of the language. Cymruic has survived invasions and conquests, bureaucracy and snobbery, but it will not survive our apathy. Welsh and English have coexisted for centuries. Wales has bilingual traditions going back 2,000 years. And if you, like me, want the language to survive for future generations, then it's only right that we take on some responsibility for that by learning Welsh ourselves. Fortunately, there has never been more opportunity to learn Welsh. Unfortunately, it has never been more urgent. (laughs) Dilchen Vaurjoun and Brandopaup. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed researching this episode, and thank you, Richard, for your uh, your insight and your interrogatives.
0: Thank you, Gideon. No, you have done a stellar effort putting this together, and uh, I feel very grateful for being along for the ride.
4: Thank
1: you, and uh, also I need to th- thank our contributors for today. We had Ivor Appleyard, Helen Prosser, Rodri Glynn Thomas. Kate Phillips and Aaron Jones, and I think a long overdue and enormous thank you to David Yuan for granting permission for us to use his song, Ama O'Head, as our theme song. The song is about the survival of Wales, the Welsh people, and the Welsh language throughout history and until Judgment Day, it says. We're still here in spite of everyone and everything.